today on Just World Podcasts, Saudi Arabia's assault on Yemen and U.S. involvement in it. Hi, I'm Helena Carbon, the president of Just World Educational. This week's podcast is the 11th in our multi-week Story Backstory project, which explores Washington's current policies in the Middle East and the Middle East itself in a broader historical perspective. This week, we're focusing on the fate of legislation that the U.S. Senate passed in early April that would end the direct participation of the U.S. military in the now four-year-long Saudi-led war effort in Yemen that has brought widespread death, disease and destruction to that country's 28 million people. In mid-April, President Trump vetoed that legislation. Then yesterday, May 2nd, the Senate held a vote to try to override the veto, and they failed. A tragic day for Yemen, but also for us here in America, as our military continues its direct participation in Saudi Arabia's brutal assault against Yemen. The weekly podcasts in this project are all linked to written opinion columns that get published a couple of days earlier. This week's column ran May 1st on the Mondo Weiss website under the title A Crucial Vote on Yemen, a.k.a. Saudi Arabia's Gaza. It provided some general background to the vote and to the war in Yemen itself. But it also spelled out why I consider that in many ways Yemen is indeed Saudi Arabia's very own Gaza. But I urge you to go to Mondawais and read the whole of the article. This week on the podcast, I've been lucky to talk to Dr. Sheila Carapico, a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Richmond, who is one of the United States' foremost experts on Yemen and its relationships with its neighbors. Indeed, Back in 2016, once it was clear that the Saudi-led war on Yemen was a serious thing, I was very proud that my publishing company, Just World Books, was able to publish a fantastic anthology Dr. Carapico edited of writings about Yemen and its Arabian Peninsula neighbors. The book is called Arabia Incognita, Dispatches from Yemen and the Gulf and it's available wherever fine books are sold. Rush out and get yourself a copy. In our discussion, Dr. Carapico and I explored the analogy between Yemen and Gaza, and we pushed it quite a bit further than I was able to in my article, in a very informative way. We discussed the many ways the United States has supported the Saudi-led war effort in Yemen in addition to the direct military help it's provided. Dr. Carapico discussed the differing strategies that Saudi Arabia and its chief ally in the war effort, the United Arab Emirates, UAE, have been pursuing inside Yemen. She noted the threat that the UAE's occupation of the Yemeni island of Socotra poses to Socotra's completely unique environmental riches and she unpacked the matter of the extremely lucrative arms sales relationship that has lain at the heart of the U.S.-Saudi relationship for many years now. Our conversation all ended on a very sobering note. 
But U.S. citizens really need to understand these matters a lot better than most of us do. So please listen carefully and share these materials with your friends as much as you can. Just before I switch to the interview itself, let me make my standard disclaimer that the opinions and analyses that I express in the whole of this story backstory project are my own personal ones and do not represent the views of Just World Educational or any other body. But let me remind you too that you can find lots of great resources on our website www.justworldeducational.org. On the homepage there, you'll see a prominent button that will send you to all the content we've produced so far in this story backstory project. Plus, we've been putting some great new posts onto our blog in the past few weeks, including a fascinating new one from Miko Pellard. You'll find a handy tab at the top of our homepage that will send you to the blog, and another handy tab that tells you how you can donate to support our work. Please, please consider doing so. I urge you to explore all the resources that we make available at no cost online through the website and through our lively Just World Ed accounts on Twitter and Facebook. So now, my conversation with Dr. Sheila Carapico. Well, hello, um, Dr. Sheila Carapico. Glad to have you on the line. And um, this week on the podcast, we're talking about Yemen. We're talking about Yemen's big and powerful neighbors. We're going to talk about U.S. policy a little bit. But let's start with Yemen. And um, I think you've probably read the article that I wrote in, in Mondo Weiss earlier this week that sort of laid out the general dimensions as I see them of the Yemen issue, the Yemen tragedy, catastrophe, whatever you like to call it. I mean, it's almost too painful to talk about too much, but we have to. So um, tell me what comments you have about um, some of the things that I was writing there, because I really value your feedback so much. Well, I mean, the thing that first and most caught my attention uh, in your telling was the analogy with Gaza, which I started a paper a couple of years ago. Actually, it went through a couple of iterations and has now been a little bit superseded both by events and by a recent UNDP report that, you know, Yemen's development has been set back something like 20 years Mm-hmm. But, you know, my own thoughts on the Gaza were um, based on um, the concept put forward by Sarah Roy in talking about uh, Israeli uh, warfare in Gaza. And as you point out in the article, Yemen is much, much bigger, population close to 30 million, uh, compared with Gaza of what, like 2 million or something like that. But she used the concept of de-development. Um, which to me really captured a lot of the Saudi-led coalition's um, airstrikes inside of Yemen, which have included targets in this uh, group called the Yemen Data Project, um, which is very good. They and they they um, trace targets. They don't necessarily they don't capture deaths, but they trace targets, and those targets clearly include all the major um, transportation uh, infrastructure, which started with the 
uh, bombing of the runways at Sana'a Airport and also the other airports, except for in the far south, which is a slightly different question, um, the naval blockade of Al-Hodeida and other Red Sea ports. And then it goes on to electricity stations, sanitation facilities, um, hospitals, which are presumably being targeted because they're Houthis there, but you know that's not necessarily proven. Um, did I already say uh, water? And then um, factories, that's been very well documented, both by uh, the Yemen Data Project and also by Human Rights Watch. Um, gas stations is another big one. Uh, bridges. Um, so in other words, putting out, oh, and then farms, which uh, the anthropology Martha Mundy has looked at quite closely. Uh, and um, there's deliberate targeting of agricultural infrastructure and indeed agriculture itself. And then, of course, there's just, you know, bombing of, oh, and historic sites. I mean, just across the board, destroying anything that might be considered um, a developmental infrastructure. And the concept that Sarah Roy used for Gaza was useful, I think, in helping me to conceptualize what that means in terms of crippling the capacity um, for development. Um, and then I would add also to that that another thing that's been just decimated is the ability to collect um, information. So because all of basically all of the ministries are more or less out of commission. So for example, the World Bank, um, which usually has pretty good data collection capability, is now publishing just wild guesstimates. Um, so, yeah. And, and, it's, and, and journalists can't get in, and so things aren't documented. So it's every form of infrastructure, including information. If I could just jump in there, um, I think it's great that you're saying this, because as you list these kind of targets, it reminds me also of um, Israel's classic Dehir doctrine um, that it used in 2006 against Lebanon, which was definitely, you know, bridges and um, electricity, the, the central electricity generating plant and like vital infrastructure that is vital to civilian well-being. Right. Exactly. And also in the case of Gaza and, and Yemen, as you mentioned, a lot of sort of productive facilities, factories and storehouses, agricultural, you know, processing um, facilities and so on. I mean, I went to Gaza in 2009, right after Operation Cast Lead, and you, you would just go up and down the east of Gaza and bombed facilities after bombed facilities. Like, I can imagine that, that Yemen is huge areas of Yemen are like that. And and so this is our our friends, our allies, the Saudis who are doing this in in Yemen with US military help. Yeah. Yeah. I just add one more point and then I'll come to, I'll one more point about targeting and then I'll come to that question. Um there's also the deliberate um targeting of sewage and water facilities which is the reason why there's the cholera epidemic. Oh, right. Yeah. So that's, that's a man-made cholera epidemic, which is affecting, you know, 
hundreds of thousands now of people. Um, and there is, of course, a you know, factor of it's, it's also man-made famine. It's not really that there isn't any food. It's that livelihoods have been destroyed, including civil service, as well as, you know, private entrepreneurs or farmers or truck drivers or whatever. So people can't buy food. So there's a health care crisis in Yemen, and that's what gained, what earns it the um, label of the, the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world, is specifically the cholera and famine, both again man-made. Now, that's, you know, there's really no, no question that the Saudi-led coalition, which is, you know, fights almost exclusively from the air and or from uh, at sea, in other words, air force and naval forces, um, is deliberately bombing most of the sites. I mean, now and then they'll say, oops, you know, we didn't met, mean to hit that funeral. Although even then you have to wonder um, whether they're telling the truth. But in any case, most of it is clearly deliberate targeting. And yes, the United States, as you point out in your piece, and as others have as well, has been helping with um, you know, logistics, including the in-air refueling, although I think the U.S. has cut back a little bit on the refueling. But they've been training the Saudis to do it, right? Yeah, or maybe, maybe people working for the Saudis, so they might still be Americans, but not in an official capacity. I don't know. So um, before we come back here to the United States and look at a little bit of the, the U.S. politics of this, um, let's look a little bit at the regional politics there in the Arabian Peninsula, um, about which, of course, you recently pulled together a wonderful an anthology called Arabia Incognita. Um, so when we talk about the Saudi-led coalition, um, that is Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and other other Gulf Cooperation Council um, members involved in that, or is it basically those two? It's mainly those two. Bahrain provides a little bit of kind of lip service, I suppose you might almost say. Sudan, at least under uh, the deposed government. Uh, Egypt has pulled back a bit. Um, but, you know, part of the effort has been to for the Saudis to conduct an air war and um, then other countries to contribute at least some ground forces uh, in exchange for assistance from either the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates. From the beginning, I always thought, you know, the, it's the Saudi-led coalition and that the Saudis and the Emirates were, you know, working towards the same goals. That has increasingly seemed not to be the case. In other words, there seems to be a split between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The Emirates have become very, very active on the southern coast, what used to be the old South Yemen, uh, which runs from the Oman border to um, the Red Sea around Aden, which was the old uh, British colonial port. And there, the de-development thesis kind of runs aground, and I've had a little bit of trouble with it, because the Emiratis at this stage appear to be really trying to carve out 
more or less of an economic colony. So they're they're building things, they're um, you know uh, investing, but of course in the hopes of controlling things. Yeah, the Emiratis who do have at least some troops on the ground, although probably more of those are some kind of foreign troops rather than Emirati troops, but the Emiratis themselves are on the ground. They're also investing. And they're investing in, well, they're investing in oil facilities. They're investing, as far as I know, in things like hotels and in the ports that are in the south on the Arabian Sea. Um, And, you know, they're trying to kind of remake the economy. They're working with various local groups, uh, some of which are militias who are at odds with one another. But so the, the Emiratis, unlike at the beginning of the war, when it seemed that Saudi Arabia and the Emirates were, again, working for the same purpose, so one could refer to the Saudi-led coalition as kind of, you know, a solid coalition. Now it seems that the Emirates are perhaps trying to carve out um, a new South Yemen and at least some some... Well, Southerners mainly do want to be independent from the Republic of Yemen. Uh, There's a split um, with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Initially, the Southerners, the majority of whom um, have been calling for the restoration of the old South Yemen, in other words, um, secession from the Republic of Yemen, and many of them were welcoming uh, the Emirati overtures. Now there's um, at least some of the Southerners um, and certain parts of the South, but also certain, you know, parties, political orientations who are becoming increasingly resentful um, of the Emirates who are running, for example, their own secret prisons. Uh, They're disappearing people. Uh, Some of those people come out, you know, having been tortured. Some of them never come out at all. Their mothers are demonstrating outside the prisons. So the Emirates are, on one hand, not, I think, the epitome of de-development, again, in the sense that they are um, investing. But on the other hand, they're doing so in a very, you know, neo-colonial way. And I think it looks from the maps as if they've completely taken over the island of Socotra. Presumably that has some strategic value. Does it have other value as well? Oh, I mean, it's a World Heritage Natural Site. So it's one, it's like the Galapagos. Uh-huh. It has unique, I'm not very good at, at naming these, but it has any number of unique species in the world and has heretofore been rather um, untouched by, you know, hotels and developments and big ports and stuff like that. And, yeah, they seem to be taking it over with the intention of making it a kind of um, tourist resort for especially for people from the Gulf. And, you know, um, environmental groups are uh, trying to raise awareness about the dangers to, it would be like, you know, building a, a military base on the Galapagos. Uh, <laughs> Or, or in the uh, in Diego Garcia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, which of course there is. Yes. Yes. So, amongst the other Gulf 
um, Coordination Council, GCC states, um, we'd, Oman has not joined the, the war coalition and I think tried to do a little bit of mediation and the same with Kuwait. Um, what happened with Qatar? Were they in it at the beginning? No, I think they they were pretty skeptical from the beginning. The war started more or less. I'm not sure I could trace this month by month, but it kind of coincided with the um, increasing rift between Qatar and uh, particularly Saudi Arabia, which, of course, I mean, the war itself and then that rift came up really with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, with the crown prince, which is all in early um, 2015, and then worsened, um, you know, as time went on. Kuwait also, if they are involved, uh, it's on a very low and subtle level. Um, Oman, as you said, and they, I mean, for strategic reasons, I think also, Oman has tried some diplomacy um, because of their, 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 of course, kind of sandwiched between Yemen, I mean, they share a border with Yemen, you know, are a little bit, they're less belligerent towards uh, Iran than Saudi Arabia and even the Emirates. So they have made some efforts, I think, at diplomacy. So actually, now we've uh, mentioned Iran, and that makes me want to dive back into one um, key question about Yemeni politics, which is the Houthis. Um, <laughs> I really don't know much about the Houthis. Uh, are they all Zaidi um, Muslims or is it a coalition? They had um, a, a coalition with Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was the previous president, who was not a not a Zaidi, as far as I recall. So, like, can you just untangle it for, for me and for the listeners a little bit of, like, who are the Houthis? Who are, who's in their coalition? What do they represent? You know, there's a wonderful book out, an edited volume called Sectarianization. So, for example, Ali Abdullah Saleh, as far as I know, just given his regional background, would have been raised Zaidi. Okay. But not ever self-identified as Zaidi. And then, because people didn't self-identify, certainly not as Shia or Sunni, but even Zaidi and then the, 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 the uh, Sunni denomination in, in Yemen is called Shafi'i. Right. And then at some point, the Saudis started proselytizing a very kind of Salafi or Wahhabi uh, form of Islam. And then the Houthi movement, uh, which is fundamentally Zaidi, but from a very particular part of the country in the far north, near the Saudi border had what many authors, you know, anthropologists and historians who have studied them have called a Zaidi revival. So the, and then they had an uprising against Saleh. They fought six separate wars against Saleh. And then once the Gulf Cooperation Council kind of started meddling in the transition, and they forced Salah out, and then they started, I don't even want to go into those details, but in a surprising turn of events, boy, I was really taken aback by this one, Salah and the Houthis joined forces. Yeah. 
And then, of course, a couple of years later, Saleh decided to change coats again and um, join the uh, government, led, I may add, by his hand-picked former vice president, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi. And once the Houthis saw that he was doing that turncoat thing, they killed him. Right. So, so not necessarily a wonderful bunch of people. Not necessarily a wonderful bunch of people, but also to say that it's purely sectarian or that everybody who's on the Houthi side is Zaidi is, I think, to fall into what I consider at least um, a Saudi narrative about this being about the great denominational desi- uh, divide in uh, in Islam in general, and in Yemen in particular, between Sunni and Shia. Um, and that has become more and more true as the war has gone on. But that's why the term, I think, sectarianization mm-hmm. is useful, rather than to assume that they're fighting over who would be the successor to the prophet, you know, centuries ago. Right. Some of this... Um, like intra-Yemeni politics, presumably leaks over the border into Saudi Arabia, given that Saudi Arabia, as currently constituted, contains two provinces that were historically Yemeni, right? Yes. Um, Yes, they do. And those were won in wars in the 1930s. And then there's, of course, also an oppressed uh, Shia um, minority inside the kingdom uh, who the Saudis tried to blame on anything and everything uh, that goes wrong. You know, they just... But, but that's kind of the, the other side of the peninsula, right? That's, right. that's, that's on the... Um, on Gulf. the Gulf Coast. Right. right. So uh, just trying to put all this stuff together because, it, you know, I, I lived through the civil war in Lebanon for so many years and you have this kind of dizzying array of coalitions that break and make and yeah. reform and, yeah. and Yemen seems very similar to that. Yeah. So, um, well, talking of internal politics, let's come home here to, to Washington, D.C. And um, so Barack Obama was um, with his fine national security team, the one that decided to support, and this was not only just giving a green light to the Saudis to go ahead in 2015 um, with launching their Operation Decisive Storm, but also to give material military aid to that effort. So to me, that's a little bit like further than what the U.S. attitude toward Israel's various military adventures has been, although who knows. Um, So Barack Obama continued to support the Saudi war in in Yemen till the end of his term, and then Trump has supported it very strongly ever since. But things are changing on Capitol Hill. How do you explain those um, those current changes? The like the support that the uh, Senate and House resolutions got in recent months the resolutions that would stop material U.S. military aid going to the Saudi war effort? Well, I mean, even before Obama, 
you know, it's been U.S. policy for a long time uh, to export as many weapons to uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the, the petro-monarchies, so-called, um, who have, you know, a lot of money and are willing to collect military um, hardware. And uh, so they, 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 and they pay cash. You know, it's not Israel. They, they pay for those. Oh, and, they, and they pay like top dollar. They, yeah, exactly. They, they, they subsidize a huge portion of the U.S. military's own production and procurement in, in essence. Yeah. And the major arms exporters, more to the point. So they I mean, it's a balance of trade issue. Um, it's a manufacturing issue. And traditionally, Congress, um, you know, there are American arms manufacturers in most congressional districts, and I think in every state. And so congressional support for those um, weapons sales has been very high. The one thing, the only thing you will ever hear me say good about um, Donald Trump is that he has been very candid in saying that the war in Yemen is good for American jobs and the American economy. Obama took that opinion, and so did uh, Hillary Clinton, but they never said it in quite so many words, whereas Trump has. Think, though, that, you know, there's a point at which uh, the American public and through them, you know, increasing numbers of, of, of congressional representatives and senators we're looking with horror at this humanitarian disaster. I mean, it's not as if Yemen ever threatened Saudi Arabia whatsoever. It's purely an intervention. It's not a war, particularly. It's an intervention um, with no particular purpose and, and leading to no um, particular outcome except for, you know, death and destruction and cholera and starvation on a massive scale. And so, you know, certain numbers, members of Congress have been um, reacting to this now for a few years and increasing numbers of senators and Congress people are, are just horrified. But the, uh, the part that they're attacking is really the very small um, proportion of the whole arrangement, which might be called quote unquote aid. So the in-air refueling surveillance assistance, targeting assistance. And that aid, so-called, is just minuscule compared with the arms exports. So even what Congress is calling for and the president is promising to veto um, would not in and of itself put an end to the war. So Sheila, um, we would hope that the current uh legislation can go through and, and the senators can override the veto. And that would only stop the the actual military aid that the U.S. military is giving to to the Saudi war effort. But what should we be asking for beyond that? Should we be asking for an arms embargo on on transfers of weapons to Saudi Arabia? Should we be asking for um, the U.S. to take action at the Security Council to end this war? What should we be asking for? The U.S. is not going to take action in the Security Council. If anything, they will block action in the Security Council. An arms embargo specifically against Saudi Arabia, I mean, you know, that would be a good thing. 
But I think it's such a big task that we may as well take a step back and think about undoing the military industrial complex, which is so detrimental to the world climate. You have the fuel and the materials used to manufacture um, weapons whose only purpose is to destroy things. You have the fuel expenditure to get the weapons there. You have the explosions on the ground. You have the destruction. Here, think of the pictures of Aleppo in Syria and what that cleanup is going to cost. Um, and you don't have quite that scale of destruction in Yemen. But the, um, again, de-development, or the other word I've used is ecocide. I mean, as long as such a huge proportion of the um, resources of the United States are devo devoted to creating, manufacturing um, weapons of, of mass destruction, that's not exactly the way that's usually used. I, it's hard for me to be optimistic. Right. Well, I guess as part of the Green New Deal, one might see the conversion of military industries to, you know, building things that we actually need in this country, like bridges and roads and high speed rails and <laughs> conversion of the military industries would be a great thing. Um, so um, I think we'd probably better wind this up right now. But it's been great talking to you and um, hope to have you back on the podcast soon. And thanks for all your work. Thanks for listening.